0: I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. They have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. Victory. Victory in spite of all terror.
1: After three years of blowout spending, printing cash and flooding the market with unbacked loans, the federal government has finally found someone to blame for the growing economic carnage. Greedy CEOs in the grocery department. But more price-fixing won't solve our recession, and Dr. Michael Tyson and I, Timothy Tyson, will explain why today on The Other Club. This show is produced by Liberty Coalition Canada in partnership With ChristianWeek.org, Liberty Coalition Canada exists to establish Christ's justice and righteousness and to defend those who stand. Christian Week exists to provide a practical, balanced, hope-filled perspective on national and global issues. So go check out ChristianWeek.org and find out what we're printing there today.
0: Hey, everybody, it's good to be with you, uh, Tim, and with everybody listening in. Before we get started, I want to tell you about two upcoming events. Our Liberty Podcasts Live uh, event, one big event, is being divided into two nights Monday, October 23rd at Trinity Bible Chapel in Water- Waterloo. We're going to film Liberty Dispatch Live. And then on Tuesday, October 24th at Trinity Baptist Church. Uh, in Burlington, we are going to film Liberty Lounge live. And you can go to the Eventbrite link that is in uh, the uh, the window here. Uh, you can uh, sign up by following the links that we share out on our emails. We would really like you to attend one of these nights. Uh, each night costs $25, uh, 7.30 to 9.30 You're going to be able to sit in with myself, Tim, Andrew, and Matthew, uh, maybe with some special guests uh, in order to hear us podcast live. And, of course, the real reason for that event is to make you more and more aware of the court cases, the Christians who we are defending, and also about some of our um, uh, program costs. We really need to do some end-of-the-year fundraising uh, we want to we increase the war chest so that we can continue to fight. And folks, there are a lot of court cases that we could take. So please come out to one of these events for Liberty Podcast Live. Uh, down in South Carolina, we are partnering with some American friends to put on the Spark Leadership Conference. And that's October 31st to November 1st. This is where... Some of our Americans are helping platform Canadian pastors connected to Liberty Coalition Canada to illustrate the current evangelistic, legal, and cultural challenges facing the church in North America. So we're really excited to be able to bring myself, Dr. Joe Boot, Tim Stevens, uh, Nate Wright, and our lawyer, James Kitchen, to the American church to tell them in Charleston what's been going on in Canada and how Americans need to be awake and aware uh, to stand for Christ and, and not give in to the woke left. So that's October 31st November to November 1st. It's a two-day conference for $50. And we're talking about inflation today, Tim. So to put on a two-day conference for $50, bucks, look, um, our break-even threshold, because we do math too, our break-even threshold is 300 participants. We want over uh, 800 to 1,000 people there that will help raise some money for Liberty Coalition Canada, that will help raise some money for some of our American work. So please uh, come to this conference, the Spark Leadership Conference, for 50 bucks, you can come. We really appreciate it if you would come. Tim, as we talk about money, as we talk about prices, I'm going to tell you, I'm really excited about this show, but it's going to be heavy, not in tone. It's going to be heavy in content. And I really yeah. hope our listeners, if, as they're trying to get some of these basic economic concepts, they might have to have a re-listen, Tim, because we're bringing some some good stuff here.
1: Yeah. bring it, Keep a notepad handy. Uh, pour yourself a cup of coffee. And we do really hope that you enjoy this episode and that you can absorb a lot from it. Um, Again, this is the other club. This is the political dining club for those unable to uh, join in the mainstream conversation. So – And I fully understand
0: that under normal, normal circumstances based on my appearance, this is the last day, folks, before I get a haircut. This is the last day before I shave. Allergy season is over. Uh, I'm cleaning myself up. So I understand, Tim. Today is, of all days, I'd be kicked out of most restaurants. Sorry everybody has to look at this face. <laughs> but we spent more time in research than we did in powder and makeup because yeah. we're men. So that's what we're going to do. Let's do it. So shut your eyes if you have to. Go audio only. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Or just fixate on Tim's beautiful uh face the 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 genetics i'm always completely jealous of
1: but enough of that uh let's get to the meat of the of the meal here
0: great so am i like serving the first course or are you I starting us to. off yeah, you took a you're... really you said let's get started and then you took a drink of water okay everybody yeah um So both the Liberal and NDP parties have announced that grocery stores are making too much profit. Um, Quote, grocery company CEOs are once again being called on the carpet by the federal government to discuss how to control food inflation. And Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says he won't rule out (laughs) – I'm sorry. He won't rule out a tax on windfall grocery profits. Woo! Surprise! The government won't rule out taking your money from you if you make too much of it. That's from the Toronto Star. And of course, from the NDP um, website on their own, so this is directly from the NDP website, Jagmeen Singh introduces bill to lower prices for Canadians. On Monday, on the first day of the new parliamentary session, NDP leader Jagmeen Singh is introducing his plan to lower grocery prices for Canadians. So folks, what's happening is price inflation, the prices of things are going up, the amount of dollars you have to spend out to get the same thing uh, is increasing. And what the government is doing right now is essentially blaming greed for inflation. So the food prices are because of the terrible grocery stores charging too much money. They're also essentially saying, if we can regulate their their profits, so, you know, either tax their profits so they want to make less profit, um, or regulate the prices, then we can all share the wealth. You know, the few make less money, while well, the 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 more, the the greater, the broader citizenry um, makes get, gets to share that. So, folks, I want to admit right here, Tim. I think it's a really important point to admit. That on its face, the idea of steal from the rich to feed the poor, people generally accept. And in fact, as we were writing the script, Tim, I just realized for the first time how socialistic the story Robin Hood is.
1: Like, come on, you didn't just figure that out. I mean, surely there's a little I, I think of clicked there. We really, like, okay.
0: I, like, I, I think it clicked for the first time in the sense that Probably a socialist wrote the story. Anyways, um, but seriously, also, as we talk about this, Tim, people have scriptures that come to mind and, and a Christian goes, well, shouldn't I be against greed? Shouldn't I be against the rich getting so rich and the poor being so poor? So I did want to read a number of scriptures before we get into this, Tim, that I think bring up, teach Christians how to think about this. But sometimes some of these scriptures seem to be in conflict, and we want to just help bring information uh, to the conversation about this. So first of all, of course, Exodus 20, 15 to 17, you shall not steal. So stealing is bad. Um, Also, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant or his ox or donkey or his corvette or anything that belongs to your neighbor. I don't know why I use Corvette. I don't even like those cars. Then we come to Proverbs 22. Do not exploit the poor because they are poor and do not crush the needy in court. So if you have more money than the needy do, don't throw lawyers at them. Deal with the situation. Try to find justice without just delaying justice. In fact, James Kitchen and I talked about how the teachers unions are doing that to small organizations like Liberty Coalition in Canada. Uh, Jesus taught about wealth. Um, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge and arbiter between you, which is ironic because he is judge and arbiter, but he's making a point of why are you asking me this question? And then he pointed out the intent behind the question. Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus also went on to talk about greed. He went, on, um, he went on to say in Mark seven twenty, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean for within out of a man's heart come evil thoughts such as sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, Deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. So Tim, just before we get started, there are two basic concepts that Christians grapple with. They're important concepts, but sometimes when politicians start trying to to appeal to the crowd – Christians have to really understand what the politicians are doing not to be deceived about it. So first of all, we're not to steal and covet. We're supposed to live in contentment. And that means that if Tim has uh, a nicer collared shirt on and a nicer sweater, I'm not supposed to sit here and covet it. And I'm not supposed to try to want what I don't have. And I'm certainly not supposed to steal it. So we are supposed to have a level of contentment, realizing that life is not an abundance of possessions. And then also we're not supposed to exploit the poor. So we're not supposed to be greedy. We're not supposed to exploit the poor. So this is what makes this whole conversation so difficult because it sounds like Jag, Mead, and Justin are on our side, Tim. That's what it sounds like right now. Why don't you explain why it sounds like that as you talk about the cost of living in Canada?
1: The first thing people should, uh, we want to be clear about is that the Bible has a a lot to say about economics, and this is what we're trying to demonstrate, is that every issue that we face um, as citizens on earth, as human beings, um, and as culturally interested people can be addressed scripturally. So the scripture, we believe, not only has authority, but has relevance for for every sphere that we're talking about. So, yes, we are going to bring Christian uh, ethics and values and laws to these issues, and, and we're going to do that today as well. Um, but also, uh, again, you'll often see... Uh, the leftists or or anybody actually quite often appeal to biblical values because we we do have a historically Christian culture. So things like greed evoke negative uh, reactions. And so that's a way that a politician can bring you on side with his policy by saying, I'm attacking greed. Well, greed's bad. So we would agree. But what's often missing is the biblical definitions of these things. So we say we're going to fight greed or we're going to fight uh, oppression, or we're going to fight injustice, but then we don't define it biblically. So we end up just attaching Christian names to policies that have no Christian grounding. So we're just get a get, just get a bit of context here behind why these politicians are attacking so-called greed. What we're living through right now in Canada is actually a cost of living crisis. We have inflation at a 40 year high since the early 1980s. It has not been this high. At the beginning of 2023, it was 10.5%. Target inflation rates, which are, which are already too high, are around 2%. So we're talking about a 500% um, overshot of what the ideal inflation rate is. And in fact, the ideal inflation rate is 0%. Okay, we're going to talk about monetary policy in a minute to talk about why that's actually a moral issue and why it should be zero, not two. But anyway, historically, we're talking about inflation here. And if you want to boil inflation down to its most bare definition, we're talking about an increase in the amount of money that's in the economy, the increase in the availability of cash. So people will will often blame price inflation on greedy companies or aggress- aggressive labor unions, all right? So if labor unions are able to negotiate higher um, uh, uh, contracts with their purchasers, or if they're able to negotiate higher wages, that's said to drive up the cost of goods. And you, you'll see um, in Oshawa this happened when the labor unions um, just were demanding too much for their workers. And so GM pulled the plug and moved the factory down to Mexico where the costs were cheaper to buy the car, build the cars. Same thing with Hershey and Smith falls where the labor unions were demanding a certain price and Her- Hershey said, we're not going to pay that price. So they pulled the plug and thousands of people lost their jobs. Okay. So this is, you can see the increase in price of goods through labor unions. Yes. And they'll also talk about the government running up its debt. Um, but we're going to talk a little bit about Milton Friedman and what he had, the economist and, and what he has established and, and displayed historically is that lasting price inflation can only happen if the amount of money in the economy is growing as well. So those other factors will have temporary little spikes in the cost of living, but lasting price inflation is only a product of the availability of money in the economy and um that was highlighted by robert murphy we took that from lessons for the young economist page 326 so just resources you can grab onto later if you want to do more reading so uh, inflation actually occurs because the currency in the market the cash available in the in the market actually outpaces the supply so as pierre Polyev has said um in a very pithy memorable way, he said, you've got more dollars chasing fewer goods. I think that's a helpful paradigm, which means there's more money paper. There's more cash out there than there is corn or oil or wheat. So people are paying more to get the same number of goods. And we see this in scripture in revelation chapter six, and it's a sign of God's judgment. We see that conquest leads to civil unrest. Civil unrest leads to inflation because of a lack of goods that are getting to purchasers or because of a broken supply chain, which occurs during war. And so when the lamb opens the third seal, he says, I heard the third living creature say, come, I looked and before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales, right? Like you would use in a grocery store. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying a quarter of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. So we see a picture there of the scarcity of goods and the rising cost, the the increase in the amount of work you have to do to get wages to buy basic goods that would once you know have cost much less. So it's a sign of unrest. It's a sign of a civic breakdown of the societal things that we count on like supply chains and peace and order. And so inflation is is rampant right now. And and that's the backdrop for all of this story, Mike, is that the cost of living has gone way up. If you go across TikTok or Twitter right now, you'll find endless videos of people sitting in their cars crying, uh, breaking down, saying, I'm making $30 an hour. I work a good job and I cannot pay for rent, I cannot make my payments because I can't afford gas. I can't afford the rising cost of public transportation. I cannot afford groceries, which have, in some cases, gone up thirty percent. So there is a cost of living crisis, and it is a product of inflation. And we'll we'll continue to define that in a little bit more detail, Mike. But I just want to set that as the backdrop for why we're talking about this.
0: Yeah, and one of the ideas we're helping people understand in this particular pod is that when we think of greed, we have to be very, very careful in the Canadian narrative. And now more across um, across the Western world, the assumption is private greed. And what we're trying to demonstrate actually, and even out of that revelation passage, is inflation really often happens – out out of governmental greed out of a conquest when when someone is reaching and trying to um take control they utilize the the levers that they have in their own hands and um that is just as much a temptation and in fact because the government can be coercive it's more of a temptation for that greed to be manifest in the governmental sphere rather than in the private individual. And we'll talk about two reasons why that is true. One reason being um, government interventionism and how it has the ability to coerce. Um, And secondly, we'll talk about the the importance of price discovery. And when when, when price discovery is left to the free market, there is a greater and more complex and appropriate price setting, which, which tends to control. Inflation in a better sense. So, so Tim, you've talked about, we, we talked about the, the context that we're at a 40 year high. We've also talked about the, the previous definition of inflation that, that, that inflation is more money for goods. However, here's a caveat we want to introduce people to. Over the course of the 20th century, the term has gradually Not come to mean more money than supply, but simply to mean the increase of prices and goods and services in the economy. And people have to understand there's a little, there's a little bait and switch there. It was prices increasing because there's too much money, not enough supply. It's just become accepted now to just mean price increases and you go, okay, wait a minute. That sounds arbitrary. Yes. Yes because this is where governments intervening act as a very arbitrary arbiter and a very self-serving arbiter. So let me walk us through this again. We're taking, we're using two major resources, no free lunch, um, um, by uh, David Bonson. And we are also, uh, walking through, uh, this, um, Young Economist's uh, a, a textbook. And, and both resources have been helpful for our research. So governments throughout the ages have systematically debased the currency, Tim, uh, meaning they reduce the market value of each unit of money while enriching themselves. So let me give you an example from ancient Rome. So in ancient Rome, the Caesars would take gold coins that they were paid as tax tribute, and they would melt them down, and then they would add a smaller base metal, and have the mints produce more coins than the original number, and yet keep the official markings on the coins the same. So just you have a you have a um, you have an ounce of gold. If you melt that down, it can only make certain amount of coins. So everybody thinks there's only a certain amount of coins in circulation and a certain coin has a certain value. So everybody can then turn around and go, oh, if I give you this for a gold coin, it it means something. But when you melt down the gold and then add that extra metal, instead of just being able to produce a 1,000 gold coins, you give yourself the ability to produce 1,100 gold coins. So everybody's walking around going, Hey, why is there more money in the system? Why does it seem like the government has more ability to buy stuff up? And I I don't understand. So that's what happened. And then of course the merchants become aware of this and they would address their prices accordingly. Oh, I'm I'm really dealing with a government official here who's trying to buy something from me. He's giving me less gold per coin, and so I will demand more coins. And that is the way the price
1: inflated. Mike, can I just jump in here with a quick yeah. – just an, uh, just one other quick illustration. And we saw this during COVID in the housing market. And I think this is probably the easiest way – If if this concept is hard for you or it's new for you – this might be the easiest way to understand it. If you tried to buy a house in 2021 or maybe 2022, you went on realtor.ca and you found that the number of houses for sale were very few. There was just not many people um, selling their homes. And what you found was if you tried to go see a home you would have to schedule a showing amid 50, 60 other showings. And if you submitted an offer, you'd be in a competing offer situation with 5, 10, 15, sometimes 20 competing offers. So the housing market became impossibly competitive. And it also drove up the prices of houses. People in 2022 were selling their houses for 20, 30, 40% over the asking price. So the price of housing literally just shot through the roof overnight. Why did this happen? Because people had access to what? A lot of money. So somebody who could normally, on in, in a regular year, only offer $350,000 for a house, they were now guaranteed a loan of up to $500,000, dollars $700,000, which means that they could offer more to begin with. So to compete with those offers, you had to increase your own. So you had more money in the economy because people had access to loans. They had because access the to government cash was printing more money. Yep. They were literally printing more money and you print money by issuing it to banks and banks issue it as loans. So you have more money in the pockets of more people With more competition for fewer goods. So it made buying a house impossible, which by the way, under the the Trudeau liberals, the average price of a home in Canada has literally doubled in eight years. We're talking under 400,000 in 2015 to now over 750,000 in 2023. So this is, this is the effect that takes place when the government is involved in uh, diluting or devaluing a currency by increasing its supply to the market. So I just thought maybe that would kind of put a slightly different angle on that, Mike. Yeah,
0: and conquest is a great way to understand monetary policy that debases consumer independence and power and creates poverty independence. If you flood the market with with money to increase your own governmental buying power and to decrease the uh, the independence of the citizenry, And those people who have money and who are operating in the economy know what you've done and decide, well, if you've devalued the dollar, I'm taking more dollars. What you create is this struggle and you, and you create more poverty and more dependence from the people. So then you, the government turn around and say, Hey, look at those greedy people over there. We need to take more of their money. And it, and it's, and look, I'm going to read, we're going to read so many good quotes to, to deal with this, but clearly Tim, and this is again, uh, coming from the young economist, whoever is in charge of creating these green pieces of paper has a very nifty operation. It's extremely easy for the U S government to print more dollars. The cost of printing is just a few pennies to buy the paper and the ink necessary, then the government can print as much money as they want, with as many zeros as they want, to achieve new, like a, a new, uh, new money at a neglig- ne- negligible expense to them. And this is an awesome amount of power because when you flood the market with money, you devalue the money that's already there. Buying power is slashed. The, it's 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 the coercion of the currency, and um, in terms of basic economics, it's it's very very problematic. There's a you want to jump in? Go yeah. For it. I
1: just I I do want to just just double down on the conquest um, aspect that you just brought up, Mike, because this is it's it's conquest through monetary policy, and what we're talking about is the conquest of a government over its own people. We live in the West where we we have taken for granted for 150, 250 years that we determine the limits of government, that we set the boundaries for government, we allocate power to them, we remove them from power when they um, overstep their bounds, and that the people are self-governing, that the people determine by their own consent Uh, the direction of a country. We've lived with that uh, uh, as for granted. And what's happening in an insidious way, it's not through tanks, it's not Tiananmen Square, but it is monetary conquest because financial independence, personal and private property is the baseline of a middle class. And a middle class is the backbone of a self-governing country because you have people who are able to engage in the liberal arts in education in furtherance of intelligence and career the development of civic structures and the development of um, of international trade and so forth without a middle class you do not have a self-governing people you have an elite bourgeoisie and you have uh, a serfdom you you have serfs and slaves at the bottom and what is happening a monetary devaluing of currency is the conquest of a people. It is, it, is, um, it is enslaving them and entrapping them in a system in which they cannot get ahead and where you literally rob from them the buying power of their saved currency. So if you put 100 bucks under your mattress um, at the beginning of 2023, at an, at, when inflation is running at 10%, you've got $90 at the end of the year. It's, but nobody came and robbed you, but they've robbed you of buying power. So I think that idea of conquest is happening right under our noses and it's a policy decision. These are not forces that we cannot ascertain or we, it's a who who knows how this is out the prices just keep creeping up. We know how it takes place. It is from the flooding of the, uh, of the economy with cash. And there's only one person who's got the lever to the Bank of Canada, to Can- to Canada Note or the Mint, and that is the Bank of Canada, the federal government. I have a friend who works in uh, Canada Note, and he has told me the physical amount of paper that they've gone through in the last three years dwarfs what he was printing in the decade before. He's been there 20 some odd years. He has seen the physical printing of cash skyrocket. It's a policy decision, and it is economic conquest.
0: And Tim, it, it's, it's – it- It's at at best, bad economics. At worst, it's nefarious because inflation occurs when governments print money money, and then there is more money in the system to supply. So prices are adjusted and then they reprint more money in order to uh, increase uh, uh, buying power. And it, it just it's a, it's a cycle that you just print and reprint and prices go up and you print. And, re- and it's the same thing when we talk about other topics like minimum wage. If you pay people more money to do the same thing, then what happens is the cost of the thing goes up, prices increase – and people need more money to buy things and the people who have money are fine. And the people who are not able to increase their own, their, their own wages. And, you know, so for example, if an, if a 15 year old who's a typical part timer is making 20 bucks an hour and a 30 year old single, uh, or young father is, is making $23 an hour because we're, because we've, come in with an arbitrary minimum wage. You know, a 15-year-old comes to me and says, I want to babysit. Okay, well, I'm paying you cash and it's worth $5 an hour to me. It's It might be worth a dollar an hour to me. And if the kid wants to do it, they do it. But if there's a minimum wage, it, it's interesting. If you were to apply minimum wage to babysitting, would parents ever go out ever again on earth? Like, I don't know what Ontario minimum wage is. Is its is it $15? Yeah, that's, that's more than a check. You go for you go for three hours with your wife, and and you're you're now paying the equivalent of your of your of your food bill. So this is what happens when the government arbitrarily gets involved. But they do, and they keep doing it as if there's something. Again, if if it's if it's being naive, then they're just being naive. What they're really doing is increasing their power, and they're really increasing the amount so that they can go to other people and point the finger and say, we're going to tax the rich more because they're the ones who are greedy. It's not because of us.
1: And I want to add another illustration here because you're, you're just bringing to mind, Mike, the the way this, this takes place in every across the spectrum of our economy. So let's talk about education for just a minute. The cost of education specifically, uh, because, Forty years ago, the percentage of your income or your parents' income, let's say, that it took to write to pay for your tuition for a year was insignificant. I mean, not insignificant, but it was far less significant than what it is today. Uh, my mom t- tells me she remembers um, her dad writing her a check for her t- a year of tuition, and it's ex- it was expensive in the 1970s and 80s, but. It, it wasn't crippling or debilitating. It was, it was a matter of taking it out of your checking account and writing it there. Yes, you had to have money, but it was, it was a manageable amount. Well, what happens when the government gets involved and says, hey, we want to make education available to more people who can't afford it, the government starts issuing loans for education, which floods the market um, with demand. Okay. So suddenly demand increases exponentially for post-secondary education. Does the demand increase um, proportionately to that? No. So what does that do? It drives the price up because post-secondary institutions suddenly have the luxury of jacking prices way up because there's so many more people after it. And by the way, who's funding it? The government where there is very deep pockets. So the consequence and accountability for the government the has
0: taken the money from the people while arbitrarily yeah.
1: price fixing, well, and it drives up the price of education. So now the pe- people's loans are way disproportionate to their potential income afterward, which is why we're in a student loan crisis, especially in the United States. And then what you have is actually credential inflation because now you have more and more people getting those same credentials. The value of that credential diminishes post-graduation. So now you need a post-secondary degree to sort mail in a mail room, where as before it meant something because there was a scarcity to it. So now your education means nothing, even when you graduate with, a, with an honorary degree in the arts or in, in, even in some tangible um, field. So in, inflation in, takes place in non-monetary fashions as well. And I hate to say it, but it happens when the government says, we're going to solve this problem. We have a problem. We're going to fix it. The, Forty years down the line, it has destroyed collaterally, totally a, a number of other fields. And this is why people need to resist the government's intervention when they have such power um, that's disconnected from accountability or 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 real commodities.
0: Such power and and so many bad policies. Because again, Tim, if we think about it, the only way to break the pattern is for an employer to say. I'm going to hire, I'm going to hire a person who doesn't have all of the credentials and I really don't care for the institution to stop pumping out people like to self-decide we're going to close a few programs because they're just not needed in the economy. And for the individual to say, I'm not going to school, like I'm, I'm not, I'm not paying that. I will go figure it out how to work. Oh, but who comes in again? The government comes in and says, no, we've got to regulate jobs and the standards. So you have to have this education. And so th- this is just, again, look at the
1: name for that. It, the name for that is a cartel. That's what you just described, Mike. That's well, a cartel. The more, and
0: more we get into this, the more and more I realize that governments are just cartels. Uh, now, people are going to take that as a quote, but the reality of it is, is we do believe in it, anything can become a cartel, a, a cartel if you do not have the moral principles to restrain yourself and your institutions. You will just become another big hand reaching out a, in conquest. Look, let me read. Uh, let me read a little bit um, from David Bonson. The existence of big government and progressive income taxes guarantees non-neutrality. He's talking about in the government. With steeply progressive tax rates, inflation pushes taxpayers into higher and higher tax brackets, even at unchanged real incomes. Think about that. I could afford bananas, but now I make $100 billion a year and I have to spend $100 billion a year to get a banana. But the government's pushed me into a higher tax bracket, not because I've actually gotten any more money, but because they've devalued the currency. And so now, because I'm in a higher tax bracket, they take more of my money simply because they've devalued the money. I'm in a higher income tax earning bracket. Taxes have to be paid on interest receipts, even though the bulk of interest rates represent inflation premiums. So, soaring tax revenues coupled with government's high marginal um propensity to spend lend to an increasing share of government in the economy. Um that is from Robert Mundell. He now again um Bonson goes on to say I suppose in a twisted way one of the advantages of a steeper progressive a progression in tax rates is the audacity it highlighted in how inflation caused higher tax burdens without higher real incomes. At flatter but not flat tax rates, taxpayers are still exposed to the, ver- the to the perversion of what Mundell describes here, yet with a subtlety and slowness so that it stems off needed outrage. Inflation and progressive tax rates are the worst combination of economic circumstances possible. Sound money and lower marginal rates drive prosperity. So the government's want – and look, it's happening right within this story. Two things are happening. If you make too much money, we're going to tax you. Oh, but you're making too much money because you've increased your prices because you realize the value of the dollar is less. and. We are, you're in a greater tax bracket. The, the average person's in a greater tax bracket. So it's not just special taxes like the grocery tax. It's grocery taxes and the normal increase to individuals, um, uh, income tax. So Tim, this is just, this is just so difficult for people to grapple with that when the government is acting in these ways, in these regulatory ways, the majority of the time they are not sharing. The biblical understanding of the individual bearing responsibility—not to steal, not to be greedy, um, not to conquest over other people—what um, th- what they're 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 act they're selling that, but they're actually doing the opposite themselves.
1: Bonson said at the end of that paragraph, Mike, that sound money and lower marginal rates drive prosperity. What is sound money? This is an important point and we've, we've advertised here, um, uh, bull Bitcoin, I think they're called, um, partners with our show that there, there's a, we want to talk, that's the, that's the advent of sound digital money. Um, what is sound money? It, this is a, a basic economic term that we need everybody to understand. Um, it's the significance of the difference between fiat money and commodity money. So commodity money is what you described in the Roman times as being gold or silver. You're actually physically trading uh, with, with the valuable thing itself. And gold is valuable because it is tied to its physical properties. It, it has physical properties that are of value to uh, invention, to beauty, to construction. We know that in the temple in... Um, ancient Israel. Uh, a lot of the, the beautiful um, aspects of the temple were adorned and covered with gold. Um, so there's a regalness to it, as well as the, the difficulty of mining and refining gold um, adds value to it as a physical commodity. The problem with uh, with fiscal money, and you'll look on your bills, they'll say this note is legal tender. It is a note. It's an exchange Uh, note, which means it ought to be redeemable for the equivalent in gold. Unfortunately, in the 1970s, which Bonson points out is the beginning of progressive taxation and and inflation, because in the 1970s, we abandoned the gold standard, which is that the government was not allowed to print or produce more legal tender than there was gold in the physical treasury. In other words, the government gave itself permission to print more notes than were redeemable for physical gold. So with fiscal policy, you can actually, with the flip of a switch, you can suddenly reproduce millions and thousands and trillions and any number that you want of fiat currency paper, literal worthless paper. And so this is because it's not tied to any commodity. Uh, And so the government has no accountability with fiscal money. The government can, can in very short order tied with no discovery of a gold mine again, because if you discover gold um, in your, in your country, you can over time slowly increase the supply of money. But at the same time, you're increasing the economic value to your country because you're adding jobs and exporting and trade with other countries. So the value is keeping up with the commodity money but without it being tied to a physical commodity the government can with the press of a button um flood the the uh the economy with money and we've seen this historically in hyperinflation where you could take a certain amount of money out of the bank and and we saw this in in Weimar Germany which in 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 part helped give rise to the the nationalism that um that Adolf Hitler um spoke on was that they would bring wheelbarrows of cash To the stores. And by the time you got from the back of the line to the front of the line, you didn't have enough for the price of that loaf of bread. So people. Talk about
0: Zimbabwe.
1: Right. Trillion dollar bills.
0: Like literally we lived in Mozambique and you heard stories from Zimbabweans with wheelbarrows full of cash to buy like a bag full of groceries. So. So, this idea of money becoming meaningless is very important. And, Tim, I'm, I'm, I want to, before we get into analysis, and I'm going to give you the mic back to start our analysis off, but I want to read extensively um, from uh, David Bonson, No Free Lunch. And I want to read extensively from a chapter called Value and Price Discovery. And this is, this is why the conversation we're having is so important because if you can think of like, I I just don't think people think enough like this, Tim, where my paper money is worthless if the government is intervening and me and the person from whom I am purchasing can't discover price we can't discover that together. So let me read uh, from him right now. Prices are important, not because money is considered paramount, but because prices are a fast and effective conveyor of information through a vast society in which fragmented knowledge must be coordinated. That is a quote from Thomas Sowell. If we understand prices, for what they are, pivotally important signals in a free economy, the last thing we would do is use the coercive power of the state to alter prices. Wage controls, price controls, and artificial manipulation of interest rates all work together to do one thing, vastly distort price discovery in the economy. The results are... are misinformation delivered to entrepreneurs, a misallocation of resources, and a misunderstanding of risk and reward. He goes on to quote F.A. Hayek, the creation of wealth is not simply a physical process and cannot be explained by a chain of cause and effect. It is determined not by an objective, not by objective physical facts known to any one mind, by the separate, differing information of millions, sorry, but by the separate, differing information of millions, which is precipitated in prices that serve to guide further decisions. Bonson goes on to say in his own words, the complexity of prices is appreciated by the humble and ignored by the arrogant. The individual prices of goods and services we receive... In the individual prices of goods and services, we receive the best reduction of information readily available to us without the omniscience those who believe themselves qualified to set prices apparently believe that they have. The subjective nature of value is philosophically non-negotiable for advocates of a free economy. Once we've tied value to some objective standard, We have invited an undesirable to the process. And that is the appointed arbiter of the objective value. Subjectivity in value is not only logical and cogent, but necessary to allow exchange to freely occur between the betterment of all parties. So that's pretty deep stuff, Tim. But at the end of the day, that's what our illustrations are saying. If someone says, Babysitting hours must be paid here. they are setting an objective value to something that's completely subjective i It, it only has certain value on nights when I want to romanticize my wife like if if we're on a normal day and I don't need to get Sarah uh ready for some fun fun and and hang time you know it's maybe babysitting's only worth x amount of dollars. But if you know we haven't been on a date in two weeks, and I want to see her with you know in all of her beauty uh, and anticipating us having a night of romance and joy, I might be willing to give you quite a bit of money in order to invest in that day. It's subjective, and when you when you try to just price set, you tr- you invite the third arbiter, the, the 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 third party in. Oh, and the government would love to be that person. Let me keep reading. Um, Let me keep reading. Demand and supply are the opposite extremes of the beam. Whence demand the scales of dearness and cheapness, the price is the point of equilibrium, where the momentum of the one ceases and the other begins. That's from Jean-Baptiste Say. So again, Bonson goes on to say in his own words, the economic law of supply and demand and how price discovery comes out of these two variables could not possibly be explained more succinctly and eloquently than in this above quote, never static prices come where supply and demand meet and immediately move from there as both variables inevitably stay in constant flux. So he has now quoted quite a little bit, and he is going to just summarize this. The purer, of, the purer the process of price discovery, the greater the signal in the marketplace from which additional economic decisions are made. So the less interference, the better, because the two, the purchaser and the seller, can come to an agreement and that, you know, is a mouthful, Tim. I want to leave us with those, with those teachings. We've taught people what inflation is, and now we've, we've, we've taught people the importance of price discovery and how interventionism just simply distorts value. And people will keep looking like you used the example of those companies leaving Canada when, when labor, uh, when when, when labor values increase, people will just look where they can produce what they can sell.
1: Um, I like the levity of imagining you digging into your pockets, getting ready for a date and, and you know, Calling in the bookies and just like I'll take all the cat like calling in your loans when you're ready for a date. You there is no expense spared. you know what (laughs) I almost
0: brought I almost brought your daughter into it. Like your little daughter after this podcast saying, uh, at some point when I need a babysitter, which likely will never happen again in my life, maybe when I'm a grandfather, and your little daughter saying, Well, Pastor
1: Mike how much is it worth to you tonight? Exactly. This is, uh, I, this like, is these are going to be financial lessons that I'm going to be passing on. <laughs> you can tell when Mike is ready to shell out and that's <laughs> when you clear, that's when you clear your schedule. Yeah. Um,
0: you, you clear your schedule and you increase your price because you, you, you understand the demand is very great in that moment.
1: And if I could draw some relief here, just some contrast between just to summarize conceptually what you said. Which, by the way, if you've listened to this podcast, I, I legitimately, and this is not just a dig or a cheap kind of low-hanging joke, I legitimately think if you grasp these concepts, you, you are more fiscally educated than our prime minister right now. Or at least if you believe in these things, I think you're morally uh, better qualified to handle uh, these these conversations. But That aside, I do wanna draw some relief here between just contrast two concepts. We've talked about price fixing and price discovery. And those are the competing concepts here in terms of setting the price of something in the market. Price discovery happens in the market organically. When two people come to an agreement about the value of something, and then they exchange on that. Price fixing is when a coercive third party comes in and says, regardless of what you two decide, I will set the price of that that item or that service. And this, again, it distorts market relationships that the government has no understanding over. And this is why socialism and Marxism and communism do not work. And it can be summarized this way, because because the economy is a series of literally billions of decisions taking place every single day. And the government, and this is price discovery at work, and the government comes and says, I know the answers to all those questions and I can um, and I can artificially finalize all of those decisions in a way that will not destroy the actual market, not the market that I want to create because every country has a different market. They have different natural resources. They have different skill sets. They have different natural propensities of their people. They have different um, values in terms of um, how the elderly are cared for or how healthcare is covered like every country is vastly different and these are the results of price discovery so i i just wanted to summarize it that way and then i want to bring it back to kind of our current context as we wrap up i'm sure we're still 15 minutes away here thank you listeners for staying with us Uh, because again i just believe this these are the foundations of a sure uh, economic worldview um, as opposed to what we have now, which is Whoa. largely
0: fantasy. We're only at 54 minutes, Tim. Okay. Like, we're not over time.
1: Okay. Like, let's we roll are, it out. Let's
0: roll it out. Like they better, You're probably like they had better tucked in for an hour here. <laughs> like, come
1: on. Okay. Go get, if, if now is a good time, go brew <laughs> another cup, put the kettle back on. Okay. This may be a two cup episode. Let's keep going. So I want to bring it back to our current context. Inflation has and everyone's admitting it like our federal government is admitting that inflation has blown up in this in in the West right now. What they're not admitting is that it has blown up in the aftermath of flooding the market with cash, which two years ago they were calling. Remember, does anyone remember quantitative easing? Does anyone remember that? We're not printing money. We're engaging in the time honored practice of quantitative easing. It's printing money. It's literally the same thing. And why were they doing this? And when were they doing this? Through the COVID crisis, okay? So uh, I don't want to go tinfoil hat here, but uh, the crisis, which staged an opportunity for the government to shut down private business and then print cash to subsidize the loss of economic activity uh, in order to debase currency, in order to usher in uh, a national government uh, mandated digital currency, Is all in the works. I'm just saying you can you can uh, you can quote me on that if you want. I'd rather you not, though. Um, Economist, economist Milton Friedman, who we've talked about already, he said inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. It is not a fiscal phenomenon related to government taxes or budgets. Friedman continues saying inflation can be produced by only a more rapid increase in the quantity of money than in output. So we we need to admit and we need to somehow uh, get the government to admit that it is the increase in money that has increased the cost of living and the rise in inflation. Uh, This has raised the cost of living in virtually every essential category. Housing costs are way up. We've talked about the the real price of homes. We've talked about the cost of a home loan. Look at car loans. The used uh, car market is the most expensive it's ever been in history compared with wages. We've seen labor rates go way up. Okay, if you're looking to get a, a house built or, or your driveway paved, the cost of labor has gone through the roof, even though wages have not even kept pace with inflation. Um, and so if, so, bringing us to our current situation where the government has just met with five CEOs, if this premise is true that the government can solve the wage or the, uh, the increase in cost by simply coercing prices, what are they going to do in the housing market? What are they going to do in the auto market? What are they going to do in the organic seed market? Are they just going to call in the the major players in every, uh, in every sector until everybody agrees to bring down the price of everything. They, the, the premise is impossibly large. It just so happens that in Canada, we, we exist in a grocery uh, monopoly where there are only five major players. And, um, you know, and, and that has its own frustrating um, implications for Canadians. Uh, but nonetheless, Trudeau has called these five leading grocery CEOs to Ottawa to demand a strategy for stabilizing food costs. This is, this is my take on this, Mike. This is A, the progressive mind at work. <clears throat> this is Well, things are expensive, better get the government involved. We're already well accustomed to price fixing in Canada. This is the dairy market. There's a dairy cartel, in the words of our friend Maxime Bernier, the dairy cartel is an untouchable feature on the right and the left. We, we already have an inflated dairy market, which so, protects profits of um, dairy farmers in Canada, and that's also regulated by the government. So you can't produce milk unless you're regulated by the government. You can't own dairy cows without paying your quota. It, it, it's impossibly steep to get into the dairy market because it's protected. Nobody can afford to go buy 20 dairy cows and enter the dairy market. There's there, there are no small dairy producers, and this is the reason why, because the government has isolated and protected the market, which is why our dairy costs near double what it does in the States. Besides that, that's a, this is price fixing taking place in front of us. There's also a hideous misdirection taking place. There, there, there is a show going on in this at its very core of this meeting. And that is that these grocery store owners are to blame for inflation. They're to blame for the rise in food costs. The very fact that they showed up to the meeting portrays guilt in something that they do not have control over. And you might think, well, they can just lower their prices. Well, somebody may come to me and say, Hey, as a carpenter, your prices are pretty high. I'll tell you one thing I might adjust them one or 2% given depending on the customer, but by and large, my prices are set by the market. So nobody can argue. And I think based on what we've said so far, nobody can debate that inflation is laid at the feet of the federal government for increasing the money supply. And yet, they walk these CEOs, they call them in like, like, uh, like four kids playing out on, the, on the, par- the, the playground and the principal comes out and yells, you three, you five, get into my office now. There's an assumption of guilt just by existing in the market that these people are to blame for the, for the increase in food costs. This is nothing. <clears throat> I, I, will, I will take this to the bank. And I believe this probably more than anything I've said on this episode, this is nothing short of a a PR propaganda campaign to shift responsibility away from the people who are to blame, which are those at the head of the bank of Canada, the, the Canadian finance minister and the, and the prime minister's office. It's to shift blame off of them to private players in the marketplace to say it's their fault, not ours. This is an election campaign strategy. It is nothing short of that. Trudeau even threatened them by saying, if the CEOs can't fix this problem and provide, quote, real relief by Thanksgiving, which is two and a half weeks away, then I'm going to act. Then daddy's going to have to come in and pull out, uh, you know, Get the get the belt off and 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 start laying down spanks. We're gonna and we haven't, as you said at the top, we're not ruling out a taxation measure. What the the, the leftists have never seen a problem they couldn't fix with taxation. And 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 you have to think about the implications of that, Tim. You have to think about the
0: implications. The implication is you choose to make less money, or you continue to make the the amount of money and we take a portion of it. We, the middleman, take a portion of that in our program. Now think about that. Is there a hidden motivation there? Oh, the more money the government takes in in this time, the more programs the, the, the government can provide, the more, uh, the, the more money people can prov- uh, pay the government, and the larger the government can grow, which they can sell back to the people that you need us but they also sell but they they also they also don't give all the money back to the people and so this is literally robbing from the rich while I get rich and then giving some back to the poor when also just remember folks greed is a is a is an issue of the heart so let's say somebody makes a billion dollars a year is that a greedy person the fact that they make a billion dollars has nothing to do with they have, whether they have a greedy heart or not. Like Bill Gates. like let's just, let's just use Bill Gates as an example here, Tim. Whether Bill Gates has a greedy heart or not, something happened. And that is he designed a product that the whole world wanted. And they wanted it fast. And they wanted it at the same time. And they wanted to build an infrastructure to support it. They, they wanted it so bad that twenty years later, twenty five years later, you and I are sitting on a podcast, not in the same country, with high definition, and we're both using personal computers in front of us, personal laptops. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, you know what? You want to sleep with the devil in order to upset the upset Satan? I get it. I I think I. I, I, I pff- hey, yeah. It, 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 apples and apples and poisonous oranges i what you compare whatever the point is that he became a billionaire because of the market now if greed would cause him to not give any money back, to be unkind, to develop a monopoly, to coerce governments to create laws that no one else could create computers. Because again, that's what's going on with the dairy industry, right? You have a bunch of dairy farmers who, if everybody could produce milk, if everybody could just go and buy a cow and produce their own milk, number one, they would be needed less. And number two, the resale of their farms would be less. Because if anybody can go and produce it, then i don't have anything to resell. Oh, interesting. That's exactly what dentists have to face. That's exempt, that's that's what that's what um uh restaurants have to face, you know, if a restaurant decides to franchise itself 20 times and then another new restaurant opens and competes with them and devalues the amount of each franchise, the market the, the people people spend their money elsewhere. So, so the dairy Exactly. So the dairy industry got government intervention. And if you're a dairy farmer, of course, you're going to be pro quota. Why? Because it helps you retain the sale value of your farm. But guess what? Your your farm becomes so valuable, nobody can buy it. Oh, other than major, larger corporate. So, so who can't buy it? Who can't get into the dairy supply? The person who says, I really like milking cows and I got two. And so supply is controlled. Um, you know, we've seen videos online. We've seen videos on Twitter just recently of dairy farmers dumping 20, 30,000 liters of milk because they had reached their quota. One of the very few dairy farmers uh, who is uh, standing in opposition to, to, milk quotas and to milk production quotas. So all of this is, is can't be pointed back at the private individual and say greed because greed is a matter of the heart to which someone has to give account to God. And if they're not stealing, they can be greedy. Like if they're not stealing from people, they can have a greedy heart. And the only person – they're not criminally liable. The only person they, they're going to give account to is God because they didn't give enough of their money back to to other people or to the church or, or to, or to be, to be kind. But there's no, but, but, but just success does not mean greed. So, so these, 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 uh, grocery store owners, they might be the most generous givers in Canada. They might give free money back to Canadians all the time because they make money and then they give it back freely. The government wants to say, Oh, we'll take some of their money. We'll take our cut, create our program. And by the way, Tim, what is one of the most permanent fixtures in society? Government programs. You start taxation on one thing, it ain't going away. So then you turn around in 10 years from now and you go, why are groceries so expensive? Oh, because the government's still taking their tax cut on it, even though the market's not needed. They it, it, it's It's just completely arbitrary. That's, you know, what you said, Tim, one of the big concepts you want people to take away is, is what you were just talking about, how, you know, it, this, a PR thing. The, the thing that I want people to take away is sit back and bask, bask in the amount of arbitrary price fixing there is and consider that before you immediately jump online and 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 get deceived by a government that is using Christian language but not acting in any way um, in God's created order that would allow for you know what they're saying they're doing to actually happen, man, if you think about how price fixing has affected so many different things and created so many problems, that's a policy worth being a voter and going back to the to the party. And I, again, who would I vote for? I I'm out there looking at the PPC again because I, I, again, who's out there talking about this? It's the PPC. Maybe 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 Polyev has some insights into this, but the PPC is really the only one get, tackling this head on. With Max Bernier being so outspoken about the dairy quota, that that's my two cents worth. And certainly, we do not want the government to to get involved here. Uh, People remember that you don't want the government to try to fix this. You 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 want the government to stop spending money on the government and devaluing your dollars.
1: Right. So this leads perfectly to my question, which is when those five CEOs went into that meeting, you know what that meeting could have just as legitimately been? It could have been five grocery CEOs call meeting with the PMO uh, office to demand a strategy for lowering the cost of living for Canadians. It could have just as well been the private market saying, we're gonna take the, the government to task right here because we pay billions every year in, in corporate taxes. We have a right to an audience. So we're gonna create an envoy to Ottawa and we're gonna sit him down and we're gonna say, government, you've increased your bureaucracy by thousands of people during the, again, this is another stat for, for your eight years of liberal reign in Canada since 2015 the federal government since 2015 has become the largest employer in this country. They have shrunk their, sorry, they have grown their own economic imprint on this country. They have outsized now every other employer, like think of DuPont, think of Costco, think of the major Walmart, the major employer, Deloitte, the major employers across this country, Bombardier, the government outpaces them all. And the government so the- gets to control
0: the market. So think about that: One third of Canadians is on is, in, is, is employed by an employer that can coerce all other employers to its own advantage. And so the question is Oh, and you wonder why socialism is so attractive, Tim. You wonder why so many Canadians love socialism? Because they are attached to the employer who can coercively penalize every other employer in Canada. Hey, any government worker, go start your own company. No, thank you. Because my employer
1: can squash you. So so if you turn around and said to the government We demand that you actually shrink back your expenditures. And by the way, the the government equivalent of a profit is a tax. So have we turned around to the government and said, hey, why don't you take less from us? That's a direct savings to Canadian. Is that even an option in an age of skyrocketing cost of living? No, it's not because the government is seen in its own eyes as a natural force for good. So in the midst of all this, the Liberal government's demands, this is from the Toronto Star, were criticized or blasted by the Retail Council of Canada, who said rising grocery prices are more due to external factors such as supply chain challenges, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, fuel prices, and climate change. Uh, grocers are always prepared to have good faith discussions with government about our industry uh, or about affordability to Canadians, but we are not going to get anywhere with a discussion that time and again fails to look below the surface as to the true causes of of rising grocery prices. What's hilarious here is that this is just, an, this is just the other side of the propaganda coin, the retail council who is, <clears throat> uh, um, paid to represent the interests of big retail is saying, no, it's not greed. Our CEOs aren't greedy. It's the war in Ukraine and it's climate change. It's more propaganda. The cost of living increases due to inflation, which is a government policy. So they're not getting it either. This is what's so insane. People are saying, oh, it's the war in Ukraine. That'll bring down costs. No, it won't. The government needs to allow us to drill our own oil and produce it here. We have all the oil we'll ever need in Canada. We've got timber. We've got food. We've got fresh water. We've got everything we need. Ukraine has nothing to do with the cost of living in Canada unless it's government forced uh, or, or government imposed consequences. So what my, my my Ukraine does because
0: the government is taking money from Canadian citizens and spending it in Ukraine and taxing Canadian citizens in order to do it. Like, I know, I know the point you were saying, you were saying, yeah, just (laughs) the investment in
1: Ukraine is costing that. Um, I, and I I, I would, I would, I would give the government a shred of leniency here for calling these CEOs and saying, look, we've got a problem in the grocery industry. I'm going to call a meeting and we're going to see if we can come up with a solution. There would be a shred of leniency here. If we could find one area, one portfolio in Canadian society, culture, economy, or international relations that can, that the federal liberals have improved in the last eight years. Anyone give me one metric. Give me one example. Give me one facet of society that is stronger more profitable, more joyful, more robust. The only thing I can think of is the, is the gay lobby. Canada has become far gayer in the last eight years. That is the only thing. So what credibility does this government have to point to anyone else and say, this is how we're going to fix that. This is just more of the same showmanship. It's campaigning. And it is—it's misdirection. It's again the federal government lying to its people and saying we we have your backs. No, you don't. You've largely destroyed the Canadian economy in the last eight years, and and in an accelerated rate since COVID. You've increased the money supply by double in that time. You've increased the fa- the federal deficit by double in the last three years relative to the past one hundred and fifty-seven years of Canadian history. You. This is in, ineptitude. Combined with nefarious um, agendas at work, and, and it is nothing short of that. And by the way, I was thinking last night, Mike, that price fixing is against the law. They're called antitrust laws, and they were passed in the late eighteen hundreds in order to curtail industry leaders from meeting together and deciding on a price that would disadvantage consumers. And uh, and so the government said, "Well, we're going to make that against the law." So it's illegal if the if the if um the private industry wants to set prices without government supervision, but it's actually demanded if the government gets involved and it reinforces the Canadian dogma that the private industry is bad, greedy and evil and we just tolerate them, but the public sector is benevolent, good, just, fair and righteous. And it is just such a false dichotomy. Sin exists in the private sector, and it exists in the public sector. And in the, in the Canadian culture, we tend not to hold the public sector accountable. We can change the private sector by, by rising up in, in corporate structures and changing corporate culture. We can get involved even at low levels in different areas. We can start our own businesses. But we cannot compete with the federal civil government. We need to hold them accountable through public advocacy and public demonstration and public critique and commentary, and and most of all by removing people through the democratic process, who are violating the principles of God's word. They are violating the principles of nature and creation, and they are violating God's word um, with interventionism and overreach and tyranny and, you know. If you need any doubt, if you have any doubt left about whether or not the government has the credibility to do this, think of the fact that they shut down private businesses in this country for multiple years. One third of the small businesses in this country will never return since the end of the COVID lockdown era. and that is strictly a policy of the federal government. They have destroyed one third of Canadian small businesses that will never come back. and they want to turn around and say, we'll tell we'll fix the problem in the Canadian economy. It is slimy. It's it's a new slimy low for a pompous and inept federal government who has sabotaged Canadians buying power and what little savings they have. And then to drag out the CEOs of these uh, large companies and say, you better do something about this. It is, uh, it's just heinous to me. And so there's my passion kind of flaring out a little bit at the end there, Mike, but hopefully that's wedded with some sound economic principles that we can take away and we can compare um, like you said, look at Canadian, uh, Canadian candidates who understands these things, promote them, support them, campaign for them, knock on doors for them. Um, let's, let's try to move these principles forward.
0: So that was too much, Tim. Really, we were fine right up until that last little bit. And then that was too much. I, I, wow. Over the top. I know, uh, um, I had my head down. I was on my phone cause I literally just tweeted out. The Government's form of a profit is a tax quote you know at year of election so um uh good for you uh that that's really good i I think you touched on some points that are really important just we're what we're really trying to do is we're trying to understand how the the forms and mechanisms of government are used as levers either for the people or for the government. And greed is a problem for everybody. And you can't solve someone else's greed, but you shouldn't covet their stuff and try to steal it. So if there's a billionaire who gives $900 million back to whichever place he wants to give, that's a very generous person. Um, You can't go out and covet his $100 million just because you didn't make it. And the government shouldn't be used as your lever. You shouldn't go vote for people to be your lever to steal. So, so the, 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 there's, some real, there's some real issues going on here. And again, people, this is just biblical ethics lived out in the real world or not lived out. This is just simple people. You know, the dairy farmers and, and some government representative who wanted to promote quota sat down one day and said, how do we increase the, the sale of your farms? And the dairy farmer says, I like that idea. And they were in the room and they made a policy and someone else saying, but I just want to milk two cows and maybe I want to build my own business. You can't do that anymore. This this is what happens when we take the government and we, and we try to utilize the government in a Marxist type way to control the outcome rather than just a fair rule of law. And so this is all outcome uh, producing. And Tim, you know, as we were talking about price, and people can feel like this is an arbitrary transition or not, if you want to know what's really valuable, the one thing I will leave us with is, what is really valuable is the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ that he laid down for you. If you are sitting here going, Man, I'm interested in this topic because I want to I want to increase my own wealth. I want to give generously. I want to protect um uh I want to protect uh I want to protect other citizens from government interventionism. Yeah that, that's all worthwhile. But if you're still sitting there and your greatest investment is acquiring wealth and, and 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 living for Living for yourself and 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 stabilizing yourself, and you haven't realized the greatest thing, the greatest gift has already been given to you, and that is that Jesus Christ bought those who will believe in Him at a great price. This is First Corinthians seven twenty three. You were bought at a, at a price. Do not become slaves of men, brothers. Each man as responsible to God, should remain in the situation God called him. Just uh, remember that Christ died to save you from your sins. If you accept that, you will, have, you will have had purchased for you the greatest thing that you could ever acquire, and that is eternal life, that is, that is uh, uh, reconciliation with God. And when folks, when we're talking about the arbitrary price of things, just remember the great price that the Lord Jesus Christ paid himself for you. I, I thought we would be negligent, Tim, when when that price language is so clear in scripture, uh, to, to, to leave uh, our time just talking about the prices of monetary things. Uh, folks, we invite you to trust Christ, use his wisdom, uh, attain salvation, uh, and live in this world as a very virtuous and just person, you will not regret that. You will not be put to shame. Thank you for listening. And, um, we're twenty minutes over, so I guess Tim was right. This is a double coffeeer, and uh, that makes that makes me Mr. Thick. And uh, Kim, uh, Tim was way overstated throughout that whole last section. I was offended, so that makes him the king of nuance. Goodbye and Godspeed.